All right, so we'll read 2 Kings uh, 14, just a few verses there, and then Jonah 1, 1 through 6, and consider uh, Jonah for our passage this morning. Before we uh, read the Word of God and consider it, let's pray together. Our Father, we come humbly before you to ask that you would uh, pour out your Spirit into our lives that the letters on the page would live in our hearts, that we would be a people changed, that we would walk out differently than we came in. So glorify yourself in this work, exalt Christ, and strengthen us for the task, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, 2 Kings 14, beginning at verse 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now if you would turn to Jonah chapter 1, we'll read verses 1 through 6 and consider those. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. Beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here uh, this morning, Jonah was, just by way of background, a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of uh, Jeroboam II, about 760-ish BC. He was from Gath Hefer, located about near Nazareth. This was a time of great military expansion. Under Jeroboam, the borders had been expanded almost to the size uh, that Israel was in the days of David. So if you're an Israelite, you're thinking that uh, at this point, the Lord is on your side. You're maybe a little bit better than than other people. You're well protected uh, militarily. You're doing uh, okay. And then you insert Jonah. This is where Jonah's coming from. This is Jonah's mindset, as it were. Israel's doing well. We're just maybe a little bit better than the other nations. That'll be borne out in later chapters. God is giving us great military defeat, so obviously he's on our side here, even when we're disobedient. And thus, you have Jonah and his mindset and what he's about to do. Now, Jonah, just by way of uh, introduction again, Jonah means dove, uh, which if you compare it with Hosea 7.11, it means uh, silly and without sense. Ephraim is like a dove. 
silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. Other synonyms for Jonah's name are scheming, vacillating, or ridiculous. Now, why is Jonah silly and without sense? Well, there's a couple things that stand out right in the, the beginning of the, of the book. He knows God is ever-present. He's the creator of the world. He's solid in his doctrine. And he's trying to flee from the presence of the God who's everywhere. Again, silly and without sense. He knows his God is the God of land and sea who made them. He'll confess that in a moment. Yeah, where's he going? (laughs) On the sea. Bad idea. At least he should have stayed on land. But (laughs) if you're going to try and escape God, don't go on the sea. You'll drown fairly easily. So he's silly and without sense. But but here's even uh, in in, in the name uh, a bit of hope. He's the son of Amittai, son of my faithfulness. So we have Jonah who's silly, who's way off the beaten path, who's backsliding as it were, disobedient as a believer, but he's the son of Amittai, son of my faithfulness. You have a portrait of God who's not going to let Jonah go. If he was going to let Jonah go and the sailors threw him overboard, he would have drowned. That would have been in the story. There'd be no book of Jonah. But God has a plan for Jonah, a purpose for Jonah, and Jonah is going to fulfill it, whether he's obedient or whether he needs a storm to wreck his life, a whale to, or a, a large animal to, to go and spit him up on shore and, and get him heading in the right direction. So we have a faithful God using a rather silly uh, or disobedient man to accomplish his work. And just from the get-go, I'd like us all to realize that, that we have a little bit of Jonah in us. And we can all say with the, the songwriter, we're prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We're prone to leave the God we love. So take my heart, here's my heart, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That's exactly what's going on the battle inside Jonah. I want to flee from God. I'm prone to wander. He's walking away and God's not going to let him go. He's going to use him. The first thing I'd like us to see, just several things out of the first six verses, but the first is that God calls believers to difficult things. So uh, look at verses one to two, if you would, with me. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And before we begin mocking Jonah, I want want us to consider what the Lord's asking him to do. The the Ninevites were known for their cruel means in war. The Assyrians, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. When they would go conquer other nations, oftentimes they would take the head of the commanding officer that they had just defeated, put it on a post right outside the city gate of Nineveh, and send body parts out throughout the empire, which sort of quells any rebellions because you're scared that they're going to do the same thing to you. So the Lord comes to Jonah and he says, you go to these wicked, evil people in that great city city and you call out against it. In other words, you're going to become their enemy now. (laughs) What do you think Jonah's thinking? Well, if I go here, I've got to first get my will in order. I've got to get my household straight because I'm never coming back. And so Jonah decides that he's not going to go there and he's not going to do that work. The modern equivalent, since Nineveh's kind of by Mosul, Iraq, go into Mosul and tell everybody in ISIS, repent of your wickedness. That's what you and I are being asked to do if, if we were the Jonas being called to go do this. No small matter. And if, if we knew anything about ISIS, we can uh, readily assume that we wouldn't come back. We could just get a one-way ticket and save our money. So that's what Jonah is faced with. So you can understand, I hope at least, some of his hesitation. Anybody would have hesitated. When God calls us to himself, beloved, he does not call us to a life of comfort and ease. That's one of the first things we notice about this difficult task. Go to Nineveh. Not just go to Jerusalem, call people to repent. Of course, they'll say, well, he's preaching the word of God. He's preaching the law from Deuteronomy. We'll accept it. No, go to Nineveh, a great pagan city. It's a great city and and call out against it. 
difficult task. His life is on the line. Beloved, one of the things that, that we learn about God right from the start as believers is that he's bought us with the price. We've got to glorify him with our bodies, whatever that looks like. And, and he demands 100%. He, he gave us 100% salvation. He gave us the whole package, justified, it's all finished. And now he says, well, now you're mine. Now you serve me with everything too. You need to go do this difficult tasks. The Lord also asks us to do things that uh, uh, others around us might think are just over the top crazy, which the Lord was asking Jonah to do something that was over the top crazy. You don't go to Nineveh. You don't ask them to repent. You don't, you don't do these things unless you have a death wish. And that's exactly what God asked Jonah to do. Beloved, if you really look at scripture, if I really look at scripture, he's asking us to do some over the top things. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless those who curse you. You get punched in the face, uh, put your face out there again and let them have another punch at it. Turn the other cheek. Someone wants you to go two miles. If they're asking you to bend over backwards as a Christian, go with them four miles, go with them 10 miles. Just keep walking, whatever the case is. When our enemies can't stand us, stand up, love them, care for them, and pray for their conversion. That's over the top. That's a lot. There's no other religion that is pushing people to do this as a way of modeling our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what we're called to. And if it does seem over the top to us, just think about this. How over the top is it that God in his infinite mercy would send Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, to take on flesh and to die for people who can't stand his guts, to die for his enemies, to become as ugly as we are in our sin, the creator of the universe, by, through whom all things were made, to come down here and to undergo all that punishment, all that suffering in order for us to be redeemed. That's over the top, beloved. That is craziness. It's why the Greeks can't understand it. They think it's absolute foolishness because the creator of the world does not come down to his creation. And if he does, he comes as a conquering king, not as a suffering servant. And there's no way he hangs on the cross. There's no way he goes through this shame. There's no way he's gonna bleed and die for sinners, for people like you and me. But that's exactly what Christ did. He bled for people like you and me wanted to, signed up for his father's will and called it his own food. He delighted to do it, beloved. That's a game changer then. That, that changes everything for us. It means that, that we're now his slaves. We go serve him and he's an awesome master. He's an incredible master because he took care of our biggest problem. So now he creates willing slaves. Now the question for us is, will we go, will we really be obedient or will we sort of shave off the hard edges of Christianity and the hard edges of what we're called to do. The second thing I'd like us to see is that the path of disobedience is easier than the path of obedience. Uh, Verse three, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with him to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So (laughs) there's an interesting uh, geography thing going on here that has to do with uh, outright rebellion against the Lord. The Lord told Jonah to go northeast to uh, Nineveh and Jonah went southwest to Joppa. Total polar opposite. 
if, if, if we didn't catch his rebellion just by what he did, his footsteps tell us that he's going to do the total opposite of what the Lord said. Go 500 miles this direction. Jonah says, I'm going to go 50 miles here. And what's interesting is that when he arrives at Joppa, there, there's a boat waiting for him. Now, what are the chances? A boat in Joppa, 50 miles from Jonah. Jonah shows up, let's say, at 930 in the morning. The ship's going to sail at 10 a.m. that morning. Doesn't have to wait very long. And uh, they're, they're ready to go. They've got room on board for him and he can actually afford the fare. What are the chances? Now in Jonah's mind, we don't know what he was thinking, but likely, hey, the, the, the path of obedience is maybe the, the path of least resistance. God told me to go to Nineveh, but if he really wanted me in Nineveh, he would not have provided a ship and I wouldn't have been able to afford it. <laughs> so off he sails and off he goes in the total opposite direction to Tarshish, which is uh, by most accounts clear out by Spain. So he's, he's going to go as far away from what the Lord has called him to do as he possibly can. And there's actually a world of meaning in this, and I don't want to spend too much time on it, but how many of us, myself included, think that because our sin has not yet blown up in our face, God approves of what we are doing? That's what Jonah's up against. That's what we're seeing in his life. At this point, there's been no storm thrown, right? Jonah's thinking, hey, this, this can't be that bad. His sin hasn't yet blown up in his face. It will. There'll be a storm coming but I wonder how many of us think that because a storm hasn't blown up in our face yet, because we haven't been found out, God approves of what we are doing. I'll just throw out some examples. And there's infinite examples. Please don't count this as exhaustive. One of the things that we're called to do as believers is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, to make disciples of all nations. That's, that's maybe the most direct application from Jonah. He had to go evangelize. Jonah said, I'm not going to evangelize. It costs too much. Reputation, death, whatever the case may be. I'm, they're not good enough. That, that's borne out later. He feels superior. Lord, I know you're gracious. I know they'll repent. <laughs> and I don't want these horrible people in heaven alongside me, shoulder to shoulder, as it were. So, beloved, he decided not to evangelize. And God said, well, you don't really have a choice. He's a prophet. Beloved, who are the prophets today? We're all prophets, priests, and kings, Right? We're the ones who speak about God's grace. We're the ones called to go and make disciples of all nations, the church going out. We're the ones called to proclaim the excellencies of God. It's for every believer. The church was doing it at its beginning. So the Lord absolutely cares about us attempting to reach the lost. And maybe we think it's not that big of a deal, maybe, because the ill effects of us not evangelizing haven't really blown up in our face, and maybe they never will. But let none of us think that God is pleased thereby um, with, with us not telling the people around us about the Lord Jesus Christ. Does God care about his people being involved in the lives of the lost? Absolutely, he does. Jonah's proof of it as just one portrait. Does he care about us being involved? Absolutely, he does. Yes, he does. Some other examples, sexual promiscuity. Men have justified sexual promiscuity by their not having been caught. That's some of the ways that we can engage in sin. Not paying taxes. I've not been in jail yet. Obviously, God thinks that me not paying taxes is no big deal. Crooked in business. Hey, I've got tons of money. I'm succeeding. If God didn't like my business model, he'd have made me broke. And so people justify the path of least resistance as going well. Therefore, God's with me. Uh, Mary only in the Lord. Some people think, hey, this person's great. Um, they haven't died yet. I'm coming up to the altar. They're not a believer. I am. Surely the Lord isn't against this because we're such good friends. But uh, the Lord says, you know, Mary only in the Lord. 
Uh, don't get drunk. Some people justify their drunkenness by saying, hey, if God would strike me dead. Something else would go wrong in my life. Obviously, he's not too concerned about it because I'm drinking every single night or I'm addicted to it and my life is actually going uh, pretty good. Um, maybe maybe one of the ones for, for us living in Pella, I don't know what all of our lives are like, but believers justify living a life of chasing money and creature comforts, trying to amass our retirement accounts, whatever the case is. And it's going really well, our savings is increasing, or we can retire maybe when we're 65 or 90 as the case may be, whatever might be happening with our lives. So therefore, God's on my side. He doesn't mind me doing nothing but chasing money and material possessions. And we're going along and our life hasn't blown up yet and we think it's okay. Beloved, one of the things we have to reckon with is Satan's the father of lies. He disguises himself as an angel of light. He makes disobedience look good. And how do we know that Satan didn't just have that ship right there waiting to pick up Jonah? <laughs> Lower the fare, as it were, maybe, who knows, so that Jonah can afford it, and off he goes. What sins are we excusing in our life because of the ease with which we continue to get away with them? I ask you that question. I ask myself that question. What are the sins right now that we should be repenting of before the storm comes? Because Jonah could have just gone up there, turned around as it were in Joppa and said, you know what, I'm not gonna sail. I'm gonna go to Nineveh. There'd have been no need for a storm. Beloved, how many of us are walking, we're standing at Joppa, we're about ready to pay the fare and we think it's so easy, Lord, I'm getting away with it. Surely nothing is wrong with this. And we're just standing before the storm's coming. If we're right there, let's turn around from Joppa. Let's head back up to where we came from and let's keep on going to Nineveh to serve the Lord. If any here are not believers, I don't know that there are any, but the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, Matthew seven thirteen Wrote Spurgeon, the way to hell is downhill and it's easy traveling because it seems easy, natural, and almost inevitable for you to go along a certain questionable road. Do not, therefore, dream that this gives you a license to follow it. Maybe there's some here today that think, you know what? I don't believe in Jesus. My life is going awesome. I'm succeeding in a lot of things. The way to hell is easy. The way to eternal destruction is a wide path, and you may very well have the most comfortable life if you don't repent and believe in Jesus. Don't think, therefore, that God loves you, that you have eternal life, that you've been reconciled with God. It's no, no picture of it. But repent of your sins. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll bear a cross now, but pretty soon you'll have infinite glory on the other side. Beloved, here's something to consider too. The path of, of least resistance is easy. Walking the way of obedience is hard. But if we're wrestling with motivation, just think about our Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine if he had taken the path of least, of, of, of least resistance in trying to redeem us. The moment he came, what's happening? He's on the run. His parents are going all over the place trying to escape Jesus being killed with the Bethlehem baby boys. He could have, he could have gone back up. Luke 4, he's about ready to be thrown off the cliff. Why not just throw in the towel then? That's the path of least resistance. This is not easy. How about when, when the Pharisees are coming after him, trying to capture him, something trying to kill him after he was performing all these miraculous signs and crying out against them, they want him dead. The path of least resistance, call it off. Father, I'm done. But Jesus keeps on plodding along, healing all the people, ministering to the sick, so much so that in Mark 3, his family said he's out of his mind. He's skipping meals because he's too busy healing people and teaching them. And beloved, it just amps up, doesn't it? Garden of Gethsemane, sweating, as it were, big drops of blood. Stress, huge stress. 
the weight of the world hanging upon the shoulders of the Savior, and he doesn't throw in the towel. This is not the path of least resistance. This is the path of hardest, the hardest path that anybody could have ever walked. And he keeps plotting. Why? For you and me. What keeps Jesus going? The glory of his Father, our redemption. He wants a people saved for himself. He wants God's kingdom advanced. That's why he keeps going all the way to the cross where he sees his father's wrath coming against him, three hours of darkness, and he undergoes it, beloved. Beloved, that's our Lord saying, it doesn't matter how easy it is, how hard it is, I'm going to accomplish the the purposes for which I was sent. I'm going to finish the work, no matter how much it costs. Beloved, when we look at that and consider the life of Jesus, there's no room for us to say, hey, I'm just going to do what's easy. There's just no room for that anymore, at least if we really understand the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we should go seek discomfort. <laughs> it's not meaning, hey, I, I, I'm totally worn out. I've got the job that's, that's the worst in the world, and therefore I'm serving God. No, it's as we serve the Lord, it will be difficult. When we are obedient, focusing on that, not our pain, difficulty will come. Persecution will come. Suffering will indeed come. And let us be reminded of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the fuel for our suffering. It's the fuel for being able to move forward. Without it, we really have no reason to continue to serve him. Imagine if Jesus has said, you know what? The 12 legions of angels are standing up there. Let's go. (laughs) I'm done. Come down, rescue me. I've had enough. We wouldn't be redeemed. We'd be in eternal destruction. It would be over. He didn't call him. He let Peter know they're all available. Put your sword away. Peter, I can call this off any time I want. I can bring it to an end. I don't have to go to the cross. I don't have to be betrayed by Judas. Peter, this can all be finished. He didn't let it come to an end until finally he had breathed his last and turned over his spirit to his father. Father, into your hands, this is your work. You decide what's going to happen from here. And he raised him from the dead. Beloved, one more thing I'd like us to look at, or yeah, just one more thing. Our sin blinds us from seeing what is really important, namely saving souls. If you take a look at verses four to six, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So the Lord threw a storm at Jonah. It was a huge storm. When sailors who sail for a living are afraid, you know that this is no small little thing. It's probably a white skull or whatever you want to call it. When when sailors who sail for profit start throwing their paychecks overboard, (laughs) you know this is a dire situation. And when the captain of the ship, who does this for a living, comes down to this, this new guy who just showed up right before they set sail and says, you better start praying. This is no small storm. The sailors were done. They were finished. They thought they were about to die or they would not have thrown their paychecks overboard. As soon as they started throwing cargo overboard, they're thinking, every man for himself, it's over. The mission of our sailing is finished and now we're just trying to stay alive. And during all this commotion, Jonah is busy sleeping. The lost around him are perishing. They don't know what to do. They're stuck in a storm that he's responsible for. And he cares nothing for Nineveh. And he cares nothing for the sailors. Jonah cares about nothing but himself. His country, his Israel, his own personal well-being. Nineveh don't care about him. 
The sailors, deep in sleep, they're freaking out. They think they're about to die. He knows the God of the land and the sea, and he doesn't even cry out to him, and they're busy praying. Beloved, there are multitudes of Christians. I wonder how many are here right now in our midst, sleeping the sleep of sin. Jonah is so consumed by his own disobedience, I'm not going to do what the Lord said. So consumed by his own sin, I'm just going to go sleep. Maybe it was his conscience putting him to sleep. Who knows what was happening? But he couldn't just handle what he was doing. Stuck in a deep sleep, like Adam's sleep when God made Eve out of his side, and Abram's deep sleep in Genesis 15 when, when he fell into this deep sleep and God made the covenant. There's Jonah in a deep sleep, not even caring. And I wonder how many of us are doing the same thing. I just asked myself the question too uh, this past week as well when I was studying. It took the captain of the ship to wake up Jonah. I wonder what it'll take to wake any of us up who aren't busy about caring for those who are going to perish. I have a a quote from Charles Spurgeon. It's actually quite lengthy. And then I was going to conclude with just a few things. When you can't beat them, you quote them. So here we go. Member of this church, professed Christian, is it not a shame to be slumbering in your master's service when the souls of men are in danger? It is marvelous to me how men can be so careless about the ruin of men's souls. Let us hear the cry of fire, fire in the streets, and our heart is all trepidation, lest some poor creature should be burned alive. But we read of hell and of the wrath to come, and seldom do our hearts palpitate with any compassionate trembling and fear. If we are on board a vessel and the shrill, shrill cry is heard, a man overboard, whoever hears of a passenger wrapping his plaid around him and lying down upon a seat to contemplate the exertion of others. But in the church, when we hear of thousands of sinners sinking in the floods of ruin, we behold professed Christians wrapping themselves up in their own security and calmly looking upon the labors of others, wishing them no doubt all success, but not even lifting a finger to do any a part of the work themselves. If we heard tomorrow in our streets the awful cry, more terrible than fire, the cry of bread, 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 and saw starving women lifting up their perishing children, or hungry men imprecating curses upon those who should keep back their necessary food, would we not empty out our stores? Who among us would not spend our substance to let the poor ravenous creatures satisfy the pains of hunger? Oh, could you once see with your eyes a soul sinking into hell? It were such a spectacle that you would work night and day and count your life too short and your hours too few for the plucking of brands from the burning. I suppose if we had once seen a man drown or a wretch born over the rapids of Niagara, or if we had seen a person stabbed in the street, we should scarce ever forget it. Death's doings are painted in very red colors upon the memory. Oh, that God would give some of you the sight of a lost soul. Oh, that you could see it in its naked condition when it steps behind the curtain into the unknown world. Oh, that you could behold its first horrors when it discovers itself exposed to the almighty anger of God. Would that you could see that soul when the awful hell sweat shall stand upon its brow as God proclaims, depart, you cursed one. That the vision of hell were sometimes before our eyes, that some few of the sighs of a damned soul were ringing in our ears. Beloved, I'm going to stop there. You get the point. Here's the point. Every day in our communities, there's people dying. Pella, Oskaloosa, Otley, Peoria, Sully, wherever it is that we're living. There's people dying every day, lost people. As soon as they die, it's over. They have an eternity under God's eternal conscious punishment. They have eternal conscious torment under God's infinite wrath. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. It never stops. And there's no more mercy. You have sailors here scared to death of what's going on wondering if there's any answer, looking for some God, almost more religious than Jonah, 
Maybe your God can help us, looking for some God to help. And beloved, you and I look no different than Jonah. Jonah looks absolutely silly. He looks horrible. His attitude is right there on the pages. He looks horrendous. We look just the same, all of us in this room, if we have this incredible good news. The way out, the way of salvation, knowing the God who provides redemption, and we don't say a word. And we sleep while others around us are just going through torment. Tons of questions in their lives. Their lives are going up and down, as it were, in the waves, suffering, difficulty. Is there anyone who can help? And we silently just sleep next to them, next door, next to them while we stand with them at work, next to them across the street, wherever they live, beloved. So I trust none of us want to look as silly as Jonah, obviously. So, beloved, here it is. We, we just tell them. We tell them about Jesus. We tell them there is a God who can calm this storm, who can fix everything. There is a God who provides hope, a God who provides a way out of punishment for our sins. Beloved, when you tell them, it's encouraging. The Holy Spirit uses that to bring other people to faith, to rescue them from their life of unbelief and from all the devastation that life lived in a fallen world brings onto every single human being, whether we can see it or not. Obviously, we need God's strength, and I hope none of us would ever tell someone about Jesus thinking, well, I've got to do this because the Bible says I have to. I hope all of us can do it because we genuinely love the perishing and because we feel in our own hearts and lives that God came on a rescue mission first and to us, whether it be when we were in the womb, one year old or 70 years old, doesn't matter. He came on a rescue mission, picked us up out of this horrible storm of his wrath and said, you're mine, calm the sea and gave us eternal life. Let's pray.